I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome to all of our listeners from around the world and across the United States. We're happy to have you back with us again for some more incredible stories. Um, if you are new to our podcast and you're listening and you uh, you end up liking what you hear from us, uh, go ahead and like and subscribe to this uh, podcast and uh, every Friday you'll be treated to a new and incredible story. So uh, we look forward to having you join us uh, regularly. Uh, we're getting back to the second half of our Aja Doliner story. If you remember from last week, we were telling you the incredible story. Actually, Aja was telling you in her own words, her incredible story of how she escaped from a concentration camp, um, walked right out of it with the help of some uh, Polish underground and uh, what she went through in trying to keep herself hid uh, from the Nazis and um, make it through the war. Um, so we're going to do that second part. You'll find out what happened to Aja and, uh, and how she survived probably one of the most terrifying moments in world history. Yes, and that significant loss uh, as well. Uh, but an amazing, an amazing woman uh, to have the uh, strength and, and and just perseverance to be able to survive what she survived. Uh, she witnessed the burning of the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, like you uh, indicated, uh, she was uh, in a concentration camp there for a while. And then she uh, ended the war as a slave laborer mm -hmm. in a uh, Berlin munitions factory. And we were able to locate her so that she could share this incredible story with our listeners and with the world. All right, so without further ado, here is Asha. One morning we come to work and people say, do you know, do you know, Philip disappeared, a guy who worked also. The men were on different barracks, we were He disappeared, so I said, good for him. I knew, he told me in the evening after work, we would talk. He told me that he had a mother, a brother, and a sister in Warsaw who were living under an assumed name. I said, how come you are here? He said, well, I, I just uh, didn't go when I should have gone, and now it's too late. But he disappeared. So we said, wonderful. <clears throat> but after I was going back from work at 6 to the barracks, tired, we drag ourselves. A girl comes running and she, she says, you know, there's a Polish woman, she's looking for you. I said, for me? She says, yes, she insists, she has a letter for you. I go over to her, she takes me over to that woman, and I look at that note. I read ten times, I couldn't make sense of it. It was very simple, but I just couldn't believe that was a letter from that Philip. Somebody, his brother sent somebody from Warsaw. And he had Polish friends on the other side, Christians. 
and they arranged, since we had people who worked on the Gestapo farm, but they didn't work as we slaves, slave workers they were, people, they came in the morning, they had a special permit, they were being paid, and in the evening they went back home. So they got, that woman was working there, and she brought me that letter from Philip, and it's that simple. If you wanna run away to Warsaw, follow that lady's instructions. Do what she tells you, and don't tell anybody anything. So finally, after I, I realized, she says to me, go in in your barrack, pick the nicest dress you have. If you have lipstick, put on lipstick, put on this, uh, comb your hair nicely, and nice shoes, everything, and don't tell anybody anything. So I come in, all the 20 women are sitting on their bunk beds, and I go over to my suitcase. I take out a black dress, I put it on, I put on um, silk stockings, shoes with heels, and they look at me as if I were crazy. And they nobody says a word, doesn't ask me anything. And after I put on lipstick and I said to myself, how can I walk out? These are all, they are so close. You become so close under such conditions. I cannot walk out like that. So I said, I want to tell you something. I have a chance to run away. But I know that it's 99% and 9 tenths that I won't succeed, but I have to take that chance. And they said to me, go, may God be with you. We here have no chance. We are doomed. But if you have the slightest chance, go. So one woman came in then. So we had to pass at the gate SS men and they looked at your document that you are working here and that you are going home. You are Christian. Naturally, I took off my arm. I didn't wear my armband, but I had it in my fist like that. And the SS men, most of them knew me because when I worked at night in the hot house, they would come in to warm their hands. So I said, but, you know, I look different, I, I look like a human being when I worked, you know. So, and as I was approaching, with that woman gave me a, a little uh, permit, you know, that I work here and so on, to show it to the assessment. Maybe 10 feet from the assessment, the gardener's helper saw me and he was like confused. He says to me, in Ukrainian, what are you doing? And I said, stay well, Michael, and kept on going. Had he motioned or pointed the finger at me to the SS man, I wouldn't be here today to tell the story. So we passed by the SS man, we came out. Outside was waiting another lady, a Polish lady. She went in and got my suitcase, and she walked out, and then we started to walk. 
to go to meet that Philip. He was. And I still didn't believe. I thought this is something just, uh, I didn't trust. You couldn't trust anybody because if you delivered a Jew to the Gestapo, you got um, money. They, they advertised all the time that if you deliver a Jew, so I figured these two women, who knows? So I was shaking like a leaf, and we were walking through that boulevard that was the nicest section of the city, naturally. There lived only the uh, Germans, Gestapo families, and these beautiful apartment houses. And you didn't see any civilian people, only Gestapo people. And she kept on telling to me, Walk straight, don't look down, look up, and walk normally. Until we got to a street that there were civilian people too. I a little relaxed, and I st still was not sure that they don't ta are taking me to a police station or a Gestapo or whatever. But then I came in the courtyard and I heard Philip's voice. And I want you to know that I didn't know really well Philip. But that friend who was supposed to run away with me, she once, apparently, that's what he told me then, she told them that she feels so bad because I would have been, I wanted to run away sooner, and she said, no, we have time to wait, and then what happens? So she felt guilty that, you know, so this I think would made him that he wrote to me a little note if I wanna run away. I of course now I pretend that I'm I'm Gentile. I'm Catholic. My luck was that I went to public school where there was prayer in school and I knew all the prayers, you know, and I had a lot of friends who were Catholics because Pauls are mostly Catholics, 99% Catholics. So I knew all the rituals and all this and all that, and this helped a great deal. And But it was very tough, the jobs I had. She told me that the best thing is to be either a nanny or a maid. And I didn't know anything about being a, a nanny or a maid because, as I say, I was not a typical Jewish girl because uh, Jewish girls knew how to, how to cook and all that. I didn't know anything. So I left and became a maid. We were very close. Where I was there, a maid was very close to the Warsaw Ghetto. When I was on the balcony there, I could see, and you heard about the Warsaw Ghetto uprising in April of '43. I was there. I saw what was going on, how mothers wrapped children and jumped into the fire rather than to be killed by the bullet, whatever. It was horrible. And it then was Easter. Uh, you know, it coincided with our Passover. So that family that I worked for that had that little child, uh, the family came and they went first to church and then they all came back home. 
and they all went on the balcony and one child, one boy, like 12 years old, he said to his grandma, 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 look how the Jews are burning, how they are. And he was laughing, that boy. And because you must know that the Polish people were very anti-Semitic. But they were very wonderful people too, I must say. Wonderful people. I had wonderful experiences and, and not such wonderful. Anyhow, the grandmother said to that child, this is not a laughing matter. She said, they are Jews, but they are human beings. We don't know what's waiting us. And this was so prophetic, because a year and a few months later, after they liquidated the ghetto, the Jews were, officially there were no Jewish. It was Judenrein, Warsaw. That means free of Jews, but in summer of 1944, the Poles initiated an uprising, and we started to build barricades. But where did we come? I mean, the Poles to the the Germans still were were the powerful. They had planes. They started to bomb. They flattened the old city where I lived. There was hardly one building left. We were running for three or four weeks from one shelter to the other, from one. No water, no very little food. Who gave you food? You had no soap. You didn't have where to wash. Nothing. We were like rats running from one. And finally, at the last shelter that we were, we had the Germans. They said, if there's anybody, you come out with your hands up, otherwise we'll throw in hand grenades and you'll be all killed. So we all came out. And what they did, all young people, they deported to Germany. I was among them. They put us in, in cattle cars. And we, and that's how I came to concentration camps, but as a Paul, not as a Jew. It was very, very bad. But for Jewish people in the same camps was hundred times worse. We were taken then to Ravensbrück, and as I said, we, we waited outside. And finally they took us in, and you had to go through a complete body check. They checked your hair, and they shaved off a lot, most of the women's hair. And I was very afraid of it, not because I was vain. Of course, any woman would be, not because vain, but I was afraid. You know, you can imagine how how we looked after running from one shelter to the other in Warsaw and then coming and being in Flossenburg and, and, and these cattle cars. And mm -hmm. So you, you can imagine that uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I had no matter to look even, but I was afraid that if they will shave off my hair, I will look Jewish, my nose and, uh, you know, long nose and all that. So this was my main concern. Mm -hmm. And when they checked me, 
and I came out, I saw all these girls, they had shaved off hair, and I didn't. I really must have had a moment that I was like crazy. I was jumping up and down saying, I have my hair, I have my hair, I have my hair. And then they took away from you everything, even glasses that I wore since I was five years old. Anything that I had, the Ken Carter, which was so important, the Dutch passport, the German passport, everything they took away. They put, they gave you some thin clothes patched in case you run away. How could you run away? So they will spot you. They will know that you are from a concentration camp. Wooden shoes, no underwear, no stockings. And we used to stand on a roll call for hours and hours in the most miserable, cold, awful weather. It was November by then in northern Germany. How I can't believe that I never got a cold there. Do you know what that means? Not, we had nothing to eat, they gave us. They would take a few women to go to the kitchen early in the morning and to bring a huge kettle with coffee. And we put down the coffee, hoping they will give us, we were standing on the rock, they'll give us the hot coffee at least now. They kept the kettle until it was cold, and then they gave you coffee. So, one time, it happened to be a nice day. It was very cold, but it was not raining. A German doctor was sitting in the courtyard, a young doctor, and we, they picked young women, we had to strip completely, and we had to run around that doctor, and he would say, right, right, links, right or left. We didn't know what it is. It was a selection. And I was selected. If you had a, a little pimple, whatever, you went on the other side. We did not know at the time what it is for what it is. but. What happened, you had to have such a perfect body to go. They took us to a munitions factory to work near Berlin in Spandau. So again, the ones that were selected had to go through again to check your hair, to check your body. To, they gave us a little warmer clothes at that time. And as we were marching out, I said to the women nearby, I said, you know what, I don't know where we are being taken to, but the one thing I know for sure, it couldn't be a worse hell than this is. Well, that wraps up Aja's story uh, very nicely. Um, it, it's unbelievable. What a powerful story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, powerful story. To, to think, heart wrenching. Mm -hmm. To think, though, that she ended up back in a camp, but uh, under the guise of a Christian, mm -hmm. not uh, somebody who was Jewish. Yeah, uh, and that's how she spent uh, the remainder of the war. But that she survived, oh. and then uh, coming to the states and appreciating her new life, and and 
you know, living with what she went through uh, all those many years during the war. Unbelievable. And that and that she lived long enough to continue to share her story. Yes. And sharing the story is very important. About 15 years ago, Gary, you produced and directed a Holocaust documentary called Deliver Us from Evil. And it documented uh, the story of two women, one of whom was Aja Doliner. And um, you got a letter from another Holocaust survivor, a very famous one, the author of a an iconic book out of the Holocaust called Night. His name, Ellie Weasel. And at the time, he was a university professor at Boston University back in 2006. And he told you that, these are his words in the letter he wrote to you, I believe that one who hears a witness becomes a witness in turn. Mm -hmm. You can be an effective voice for memory, and I know you will be. And I think these are beautiful words spoken to you, Gary. And uh, I am so proud of the fact that you have indeed lived up to everything that Ellie Weasel would have uh, expected as far as uh, becoming a witness and sharing this incredibly heart-wrenching but very important story. Well, I feel that the responsibility of storytellers is to share and whether it's a true story like Aja's or something fictional it's our responsibility to keep those stories alive and if you don't have somebody to tell them then those stories die and we have we have written records and we have oral storytellers and they're all important in continuing uh, these tales of uh, heroism of uh, survival, suffering, suffering. So, uh, yeah, self-sacrifice, loss, yep. But if if we don't tell these stories, if we don't share these stories, then people forget, and they don't uh, recognize what others went through, so that uh, certain things are possible now, or or that certain mistakes don't happen again, and that's the responsibility I think of all of us in some way. You know, it's funny. Uh, I was I was watching some old home movies, and um, I saw my grandfather, and I was remembering how he used to sit down and tell uh, Amber and I all of these stories of him growing up in Mississippi, and we just loved them. But it's been so long that the stories aren't as clear as they used to be in my head. Some of them I could recite to you verbatim, but a lot of them have kind of disappeared. And I regret that I never had any kind of recording of him telling me those stories. And by the time I was aware of thinking of something like that, he had already started to develop uh, dementia. And so he couldn't remember a lot of the stories himself. And so that's something I always regretted. And I think, you know, uh, by us doing this podcast, uh, one of the main goals that, uh, that we had discussed before we started doing this is to share stories. You know, we're making a, a recorded uh, record of, of stories. Again, some fictional, like when we were telling Alvin Schwartz uh, stories, and some of them 
real life stories like Aja's or Buford Pusser or um, Pat Garrett's son Jarvis and, and um, some of the other ones that uh, have yet to be played or have been played. Uh, they need to exist. Uh, people need to know. People need to be able to share. And by us telling them, I know that uh, our listeners, if they find it interesting enough, they will continue to share those stories with other people that they know. And those stories and those people will continue to live on indefinitely. Colonial Williamsburg has a motto which I have for more than 50 years taken to heart, and that is that the future may learn from the past. And if we are doing our small part so that the future can learn from the past, then I'd say, Gary, that we're very successful as storytellers. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, it's just, it's what's, uh, it's important to human existence, yeah. you know? Um, and, and there's, there's too many examples to go over. Um, but, uh, past cultures felt the same way too. And that's why we have philosophers. That's why we have Aesop's fables and things like that. Historians. The historians. They're all, they're all there to teach, to inform, uh, to guide us. Um, and uh, that's what they do. And sometimes so, to entertain us. And sometimes, I think a lot of times uh, it, to entertain. You know, there's a lot of things that are very serious, but um, a lot of stories, uh, even the, the ones that can be um, tragic or um, tales of survival, they fascinate us in a way that we can't describe. But I think more so because of the human spirit and the will, the will to... Um, to thrive and and to do what's necessary to to come out the other side a better person or a stronger person. So. Yes, and tonight's uh, tonight's story was definitely not entertaining, but it was definitely enlightening. I would yeah, I would say enlightening and informative, um, and I would say interesting. It's uh, fascinating yeah. is something that does that come the to future mind. Future may learn from the past, right. but I, I do think fascinating because uh, especially with Aja's story. Um, there is something about the human will to survive and, and doing what is necessary, however necessary it may be. And so I would say that uh, it is absolutely fascinating um, what she did and what links she went through to, to survive and, and how strong her spirit was. So, Anyways, um, that's going to wrap up the show for this evening. So once again, I'm Richard. And I'm Gary, and this truly was an incredible story. Again, if you like our show and uh, you're interested in hearing more incredible stories, you can subscribe to our show on any platform that you listen to podcasts. And uh, new episodes are uploaded every Friday. We look forward to having you join us again for another incredible story.